for these next weeks will be having Advent in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 8 and into chapter 9. We'll read this entire passage today and again next week. This is the word of the Lord. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children of whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents of Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the Medians and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for who who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and to the lands of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of dark, deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, such old words with powerful words because they are your words through the prophet Isaiah. 
and you do not change, the same forever, perfect in your character, unchanging in your essence. And so your word is sure, sure to come to pass, to accomplish all that you purpose it. And as this word gave hope and warning, both exhortation and encouragement for its first hearers, thank you for how this word has spoken to your people through the generations. Thank you for the fulfillment of this word to the son that was given, the Lord Jesus Christ, your beloved son. And thank you that this word has power in our lives today to know of who you are, what you have done, and what you will do. So Father, write this word on our hearts. Let us be doers of this word. Change us. Father, I pray that your spirit, which is with us, may we know it. Open up the eyes of our hearts to realize you with us. You are with us, God. Let us know this. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Where were you this time last year? What were you doing this time last year? So last Christmas, I gave you my heart, friends. <laughs> Golly, I'm wore out with that song. I'm wore out. How many more royalties we got to give to the George Michael estate with that song? But I do, I'm, I'm one of these old guys who will listen to the radio occasionally. I don't stream everything through my phone, through my car. And they'll like be listening to Q99 and hear Hark the Herald, Angel Sing, come on. And to hail the incarnate deity, like Q99, please does man with man to dwell? Like there's times I got to pull over and just worship, listening to Q99. So don't tell me, there's no, you can't play Christmas music too early. Play it all year long if that's what's on Q99. Now let's get, let all mortal flesh keep silence on Q99. That one, that song is from the 300s. Like 1,600, 1,700-year-old words we just sang that first song from the liturgy of St. James. And then Rain's like dropping a beat on it and like, put that on the radio. This time last year, where were we? This time last year, the second Sunday of Advent was our first Sunday in this sanctuary. One year ago, not to the date, but to the, the Sunday of Advent, the second Sunday of Advent, we were in here for the first time, and it was packed, packed. And it was a full morning of joy, of expectation, of gratefulness for what the Lord would do, of expectation of what will the Lord do. What would we have done last Christmas if we realized that this would have been this year? 2020, 2020 has been a most unexpected, inhuman year. We have become more distanced in our human relationships. We've become more divided in our human society. We've become more digitized in our human life. It's, it's been a most un, inhuman year. Digitized. We don't even need to be together anymore. We can just communicate. Digitally, we can work remotely. We can educate online. We can commerce online. And we can just be entertained online. What, has, what have we become? Where are we and what is this doing? It doesn't worry. As long as Amazon will give me two-day shipping and Netflix entertains us, then we'll keep, keep on trucking. What is your hope in these days? 2020 is the butt of many jokes. This is a nightmare that we're just going to wake up from. This is just an interruption as we return to normal. But that's not Christian hope. That's optimism. And I just read a book, on Live Not by Lies, by Rod Dreher. And this is what Dreher says. Optimism 
assumes that everything is going to work out fine. Christian hope is the conviction that even if things do not work out fine in this world, that our suffering has ultimate meaning if we join it to Christ's sacrifice. 2021 could get worse. You're just ready to flip the calendar. Like, we just, let's put 2020 behind us. A couple of weeks ago, I was sitting in the balcony and I was talking to a dear brother up there. He says, I don't have time to just give a, life my, a year of my life away. So we're just trying to get past something. We're in something. And what is that? In another book that he wrote, um, that Dreyer wrote, he um, referenced, or no, a different book. Jim Collins wrote a book that many of you probably read, Good to Great. And he um, perhaps know this anecdote. He was interviewing Admiral James Stockdale, who was a POW during the Vietnam War. In January of 2018, I actually toured the prison in Hanoi with Pastor Christian as we were talking about merging our churches. Um, how on earth do you live in there? The uncertainty of one's fate, the brutality of captors. And this is what Admiral James Stockdale says. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn my experience into some defining event of my life which in retrospect, I would not trade. Jim Collins, the book author, writes, well, who didn't make it? Who didn't make it out? The optimist. They were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas, and Christmas would come and go. They would say, we'll be out by Easter. Easter would come and go. And then Thanksgiving, then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. What is, where's your heart today? Are we just optimistic for 2021? Or are we hopeful in God for eternal life? Remember, optimism just believes that everything's going to work out fine. But hope is the convictions of the things not seen. It's the trust in God who holds all things together. And then even if it gets better or worse, that all things are working together in God's purposes. And so our suffering in that, when joined to Christ, glorifies him. In these weeks of Advent, we've turning to Isaiah 8 and 9. Let's just set the setting. Who is Isaiah the prophet? By tradition, he's of royal blood. He's of uh, noble descent. He was married. He had two sons. He ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah from 742 to 701. So these past weeks we've been in Elijah and Elisha. They were in the 800s BC. And King David's over here about 1,000. 800, Elijah, Elisha. We're now in the 700s. Isaiah, Micah. We're going to keep moving through history there's going to be exiles to Assyria and to Babylon. And then there's going to be a prophetic silence for 400 years. And then the birth of Christ, the fullness of time to bifurcate history. So we're before Christ here in the 700s. Today we're in 2020 in the year of our Lord, Anno Domini. The book of Isaiah, along with the Psalms, is one of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament. It pronounces God's judgment on his people and then his promised salvation. Now, as I read these verses, I ended up rereading the same verses that Mark read in our Advent reading, the familiar ones to us. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. And we'll come back to that next week. But my question this week, as we stay more in chapter 8, is how do we know the Lord in dark days? And here's a hint. Every generation are dark days. You may think these are the darkest days of your life. or Maybe not. You may have even suffered more than this year. But every generation are dark days. 
but the light of the gospel is shining forth into our hearts to change us and then out in a most peculiar spiritual kingdom to the ends of the earth. How does the Lord relate to his people in dark days? So with your Bible there, we're going to be in chapter 8, verses 9 through 22. The Lord is going to preserve a faithful remnant. The remnant knows the presence of God. The remnant knows the fear of God. The remnant knows the word of God. But the faithless choose darkness. In every generation, there are those who identify as God's people, but who do not live as God's people. So then, how does the Lord relate to his people? Many who will say, Lord, Lord. But how does he relate to his people? The Lord always preserves a faithful remnant. What is a remnant? Vocab word. What is a remnant? Derek, that's what I get when I drive up to Joanne's Fabric and I'm on the side aisle, and someone else has already taken off what they want, and this is the leftover. Or I go to the carpet store, or to Home Depot, and it's just the leftover carpet that was on the roll. So a remnant is a leftover. After what was desired has already been sold or used. Biblically, the remnant is a leftover people. Those who've not sold themselves and been used up into immorality and idolatry of their day. One Bible dictionary defines remnant this way. What is left of a community after catastrophe? After the faith community undergoes catastrophe, what's left is the remnant. So in dark days, the Lord always preserves a faithful remnant. Let me give you examples. It's all through the scripture. The entirety of humanity was wicked. God wiped everybody out with the flood, except a remnant. Noah and his household eight. Noah walked by faith. Israel had covenant with the Lord. They were his people. They circumcised on the eighth day. But the remnant were those who were a people of faith. Those who were circumcised of the heart. Elijah. Now this should be fresh. Elijah's on Mount Horeb complaining to God. God, I am the only one left. I'm the only one who's faithful unto you. Buddy. There are 7,000 who've not bowed the knee to Baal. I still have a remnant here. The Apostle Paul, now in this new covenant of grace in Christ Jesus, Gentile believers are grafted into the people of God. But God has not fully rejected ethnic Israel. Romans 11, so too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So in every generation, the Lord preserves a faithful remnant. And such was in the days of Isaiah. God's people were giving themselves to sin and evil. At the first part of this century that he's living, or that there was there in the first part of the 700s, was, they were doing well, prosperity and such. But comforts and conveniences and luxuries, what has that done to our soul? All sinful nation, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 4. All sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. All right, who wants to be a prophet? That's verse 4 into the book. Yes, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, Chapter 5, you call evil good, and you call good evil. You put darkness for light and light for darkness. They were wise in their own eyes. 
But God is going to preserve a remnant. Chapter 1, verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In the prophecy of seeing beyond the exile, chapter 10. In that day, the remnant of Israel will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. A remnant are the leftovers after a catastrophe who are preserved by God in salvation. What are the catastrophes of our day? Is the Lord still preserving a remnant. The remnant aren't those of mere religion, but those of true faith. Stats are stats. I understand that. But I, digging around on Gallup and in 2019, 67% of Americans identify as Christian. 67 Are you really telling me that two-thirds of our nation are believing and obeying the Bible, loving and following Jesus? There's more than we think, but two-thirds? How many are disciples of Jesus and how many are cultural Christians? And so I've said this before, not to be haughty, but I've actually just, it's been a prayer in the catastrophes and crises of this day, I do pray cultural Christianity dies in this land. I'm not casting judgment as first, but would we not just do this just to do this for connection, fellowship, friendship? But we do it because we love Jesus. That's the only thing that binds us together. And in that is a new and abundant life. In the church culture of our day, the Lord is still preserving a remnant. What characterizes the remnant? And the question maybe we're out each asking ourselves, are we remnant? A pastor in Tennessee says this, the remnant is not a super spiritual elite. They're not the, the varsity. They're not the Navy SEALs. They're not the Green Beret Christians looking down on others. But they do dare to live by faith in God. The rest are careful not to risk too much for him. And the difference shows. So just cultural Christianity, we don't really want to risk anything for God, but the remnant will dare to live by faith. And in points of crisis, the difference shows. Let's go to some older words from Jonathan Edwards. How he describes true Christians. They have more holy boldness, yet less self-confidence. They are more sure than others of deliverance from hell, but they have a greater sense that they deserve it. They are less apt than others to be shaken in faith, but more apt than others to be moved by solemn warnings, God's frowns and the calamities of others. They have the firmest comfort, the softest heart, richer than others, but poorest of all in spirit. They are the tallest and strongest saints, but the least and tenderest children among them. In the dark days of every generation, the Lord is always preserving a faithful remnant. How does Isaiah 8 characterize the remnant? Look with me at verses 9 and 10. The remnant knows the presence of God. There is judgment here in verses 9 and 10 against the international community, against the League of Nations. Peoples, be broken, you peoples. Be shattered, all you far countries. Be shattered. Take counsel. It's going to come to nothing. So this is judgment against the nations. And for me, that always, I always echo back to Psalm chapter 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds these globalists in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's nothing new in every generation. We just got new technologies. We're, we're progressing in our history now that this conspiring, this coalescing of powers to oppose God and oppress his people is more global in our day. There is still more regional and national dynamics. But in this league of nations that we belong to, they would sometimes see that evil is winning. How did Israel respond to the threats of its day? Chapter 7 of Isaiah says this in verse 2, When the house of David was told that Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of King Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So when you see all the threats happening around you, and evil that seems to be winning? How did King Ahaz and many of the people of Israel respond? Fear, just shaking like trees in the wind. But what is the response of God's remnant? It's right there at the very end of verse 10. God is with us. Faith. Emmanuel was the cry. The remnant knows the presence of God. God is with us. So in the face of evil, the remnant knows Emmanuel, God with us. So my question here is, what does it mean for us to realize the presence of God? What does it mean for you to realize the presence of God? It's to live, in the, to live in the realization, moment by moment realization, that God is always with me, with us. Do you realize God's presence? I know we sing before the throne of God above, and that's where our risen Savior is. But God's Spirit is with us. We are not left as orphans. God is so, behold, I'll be with you to the end of the age, Jesus promised. And he fulfilled this by sending his Spirit. How often do you realize God's presence with you? I was a good church kid. I grew up in the church, went to church, sang out of the hymn book, repeated the Apostles' Creed every week, sang the doxology. It wasn't until my college years in Harrisonburg on the campus of James Madison that just grace awakened. I loved the Lord, I just didn't, but I didn't understand grace. And so when grace just flooded my heart and understood the grace of the gospel, the love of Christ that could never be good enough, that changed my life. And then, as a college student, I'm walking around and I'm like starting to read old people like Spurgeon and A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God. And all of a sudden, I'm walking around so aware of God's presence. Like my, prayer li my prayer life in those college years was so sweet. And he was with me. But then in life, you just, you keep grinding, and you just put your head down, and you navel gaze, and you just plow what's in front of you, and you forget that God is with us. Now, there are some who will say, well, you're just seeking, you just, you're, maybe you're just seeking an experience or seeking a feeling. And I would say that there are some who criticize people for being mystics and charismatics, but they know nothing of the Spirit of God. You can have the right, you can, you can have all your doctrine lined up, 
But if you don't know God's spirit with you, careful. I, I, my default heart is always Pharisee. To have it all right, but to not to have life in the spirit. Confession. There is a direct relationship between my faith, my joy, my peace, along with my realization of God's presence. The more I'm stressed out, the more that I'm anxious, the more that I'm despairing, it's the more that I realize I'm not realizing God's presence with me. God is with us, Emmanuel. This is not only God's spirit, this was his son in the flesh. And Isaiah's already told us of this in chapter seven. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Such a curious promise, prophecy. Until there's this man, just a carpenter. He just wanted to live a life. Got him a gal? Going to get married, betrothed? Then she got pregnant. He knew it wasn't his. And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I mean, the psalmist can sing out, Lord, I can't, Psalm 139, where can I go to get from your spirit? If I go way up high, you're there. If I go way down low, I'm there. If I go way over there, you're there. There's no place we can go where God is not. God is omnipresent. His spirit is everywhere. And yet, to like to be really with us, he fulfilled, he gave us this prophecy and gave us this promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus. God, I don't, God, the hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell. That's why I got to pull over the side of the road. Q99 throws up Hark the Herald again. God took on our flesh and dwelt among us. But why? To save his people from their sins. So this is glorious that Jesus would come and reveal God to us. Fantastic, but we're still separated by our sins. But he came to save us from our sins and he did it by death. To die in our place because our sins deserve death, the judgment of God. This is the cross of Christ. This is central to our faith. This is Christ and Christ crucified, we proclaim. Do you believe this? The remnant, the remnant, this is their life. That in the face of evil, they know God's presence. We should know God's presence with us by a spirit. And even in such days as this, just be so overwhelmed that he was present with us in the flesh. And it's so overwhelmed. We're going to be in his presence in the flesh forever. This is a light momentary affliction. This is a short life. The days feel long. But the forever day is coming. And we're going to be with our Lord in the flesh. We're going to be able to look our God and our Savior in the eye. The remnant knows the presence of God. The remnant knows the fear of God. Look to verses 11 through 15. The Lord spoke to us not to walk in the way of this people, not to call conspiracy what they call conspiracy, not to fear what they feared, nor be in dread. Ahaz and Judah were more fearful by the threats of the neighboring nations. There are always those people who are conspiring to do evil corporately, internationally. And if you don't believe that, you're naive. Like, if you just think that we're all just kind of good people by birth, and we can just trust everybody and your nativity, you're going to get crushed and you're going to be disappointed if you start trusting in people and rulers. 
If we believe that officials and executives are, are here and they, they want our best and we're going to save this planet together and we're going to achieve a benevolent utopian vision together, No, we're going to be the generation to get it. Yeah, right. Yet in the catastrophes and crises of our day, my question is, are we fearing what the world fears? Are we dreading what the world dreads? The remnant doesn't. That convicts me. The remnant does not fear the evil of this day, but the remnant does fear, verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Well, I don't understand this, Derek. Well, that's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord. Not to fear him as like someone's going to smite you, though he could, because we're sinners and deserve it. It's to realize he's holy, different than us, perfect, pure. So there's a reverence. That's why I love let all mortal flesh keep silence. I mean, there's like songs that we should remember how God is so close to us. I mean, verses three and four take us back up to the heavenly throne. Seraphim and cherubim with sleepless eye. That's weird. That's mysterious. God is holy. He's different. To fear God is to realize that God alone is God. God is holy, perfect and pure. God is almighty, all-powerful, always in control. God is sovereign, even over time. God is working all for his glory and purposes. Do you fear the Lord? I only can really truly have a fear of the Lord the more that I think about who he is, his attributes. And then this should change our life. One person says this, dare to treat God as God. Don't respond to life in a way that makes God look helpless, weak, and worthless. Living emotionally as if God were not really our Savior is practical atheism. It's Ray Ortland. Living emotionally as if God were not really our Savior is practical atheism. Are we fearing what the world fears? Are we dreading what the world dreads? Or is our faith different, distinct? Regard the Lord of hosts as holy. Hold on, Derek. That sounds familiar from the spring. 1 Peter 3, verse 14. Have no fear of evildoers, nor be troubled, but in your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord as holy. It's the same words. Peter grabbed him some Isaiah 8. It said, regard the Lord of hosts as holy. But Peter says, no, the Lord of hosts is Christ the Lord. This, who is the Lord of hosts? It's Christ the Lord. Regard him as holy. The revelation of God in the flesh. Verse 14, he'll become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. A rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared to be taken. Man, Derek, it sounded like Peter was listening. That's why First Peter was all in chapter 2. Christ the cornerstone. Are you going to be built on him or are you going to be broken by him? How we view God determines how we experience God. So for the religious person... God becomes a stone and a stumbling block and a snare. Jesus told this to the Pharisees in Matthew 21. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in his eyes. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Jesus is the cornerstone are we going to be built up on him? Or are we going to be dashed on him because of our offense? We're offended by who he reveals himself to be, who he says he is. How we view God determines how we experience God. For the religious person, he's a stumbling block, he's a snare, 
But what's the word used here for the remnant? How do they experience God? He will become a sanctuary. What does that word mean? What does it mean to be sanctuary? It means to be safe from threats. It means to have serenity from the chaos. It's a place we go. I love this sanctuary, this sanctuary we call it. We just use that word in our Christian verbiage. But what makes this a sanctuary? I love coming in this room. It's just a room. It's got material. I love how it came together. I just... If I can come out of the, the digitized world and kind of come in here and just feels, we got our blue canopy there, sky. We got our earthen tones here, brick and wood. We got these pillars here, kind of just remind me of trees. They got these beautiful colors here that come through. It just feels very earthen to me, but not like pondering up the earthly mind, but it feels also holy, like God meets us here. It's a sanctuary. Where do you go to escape the threats and chaos of the day? Where's your sanctuary? When you, your anxiety's rising, your anger's building, where do you go for sanctuary? How do you go to escape? Is it God or is it the world? So we will entertain ourselves to death And social media now will we'll just we'll stream, we'll binge entertainment. Is that sanctuary? Does that refresh the soul? We'll be addicted. We'll comfort eat. We'll over-exercise. We'll get drunk on alcohol. We'll take drugs. We'll be addicted to pornography. What, where, are we, where are you escaping the chaos and the threats of this world? For the remnant, God is our sanctuary, our refuge, our very present help in time of trouble, our dwelling place. It doesn't mean if, if you're giving yourself over to that, but then this word is like pricking your heart and convicting you of sin. Lord, I have not sought you. I have found refuge in other things of this world, and they have been found wanting. Don't condemn yourself and say, well, I guess I'm not the elect. I'm not part of the remnant. No, hear the word of God, have conviction in your heart, repent of your sin, and run to him who gives grace and grace and grace. And here's, where do we go for sanctuary? We go to God, but <laughs> check this. God has made us his sanctuary. Mind-blown emoji, put that one out. He's made us his dwelling place. We are the holy temple of his spirit. <sighs> Therefore, we don't have to go to a high mountain. We don't have to go to a holy land. We don't have to go to a monastery. Wherever you are, God is there and you can commune with him. Wherever you are, you can start praying. Because God is there. It's not just like, God's Spirit's here, and I step here, and there's God's Spirit. That's true. But God's Spirit is within us. Born again. So in the dark days of every generation, God's preserving a faithful remnant. They know his presence. They fear him, and they know God's word. Verses 16 and 18. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples, these learners, this is the only time in the Old Testament that word even occurs. Disciples. You think that if it's an important word, it would have occurred more. But that's the only time in the Old Testament that the word disciple is there. But in the New Testament, when we get to see Jesus come on the scene, he starts strolling around Galilee, starts calling fishermen to be his disciple. Calls a tax collector, be my disciple. Calls zealots, be my disciple. Women follow him as his disciples. It's a very common expression. He then goes, tells us, follow me, be my disciple, and then go and make more disciples. So what does the remnant do as disciples of the Lord? Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching. The remnant trust and treasure God's word. They study and share it. 
God's word is written on their hearts. Their lives are shaped by it. But this is not so with the religious, the faithless. What do the religious and the faithless do with God's word? They have faithful favorite verses. They got that one go-to verse. Man, I'll just go back to that one verse is good. I like, that's my favorite. But they just go to these one couple verses. But they don't know the whole counsel of God. They don't study the revelation of God, Genesis to Revelation. They don't allow the Bible to define truth. At best, they're like, I, yeah, it's, there's something different about the Bible. That's fine. And I like this, but I don't like that. And what I do like, I'll let inform me. But my personal sensibilities and cultural norms will override its authority. It doesn't define my daily life. But if I need to pick me up, I'll just, you just kind of go like this mystical line, just go there and boom, and you just, you're like playing roulette here, trying to figure out a verse to get you a quick pick-me-up. But do we know God's word? There's no lack of access to it. We have no excuse. We've got more Bibles than we know what to do with, honestly. There's no lack of resources to help us study it. We have inherited so much through the ages of now where we live. What we lack is desire. And so God, would you make us a people of your word to know you and to live by it? See, God is not mocked. And in these verses, God hides his face from Judah. God will hide his face from the religious. God will hide his face from the cultural American Christian. But the remnant, it says here, waits for him and hopes in him. In these dark days of every generation, God is preserving a faithful remnant. The remnant knows the presence of God, the fear of God, and the word of God. Verses 19 through 22. But here's the contrast. The faithless choose darkness still. Verse 20, in the middle of all this, is just this word, phrase, to the teaching and to the testimony. We're talking about like going to see necromancers and mediums and so forth. And no, to the teaching and to the testimony. It should not be surprising when we see the world consult things of the world to try to make sense of the world. What breaks our hearts is when we see self-identified God's people, the church, consult the world. And so there's many who will profess Christ, but their life is more of mysticism. There's just a superstitious faith that they're trying to go about apart from God's word. Then there's the naturalist among us who just, well, that didn't make sense. They're just, what's the, what do the experts say again? That's what we do. They believe that they're saving themselves, either through superstition or their naturalistic confidence, but they're giving themselves over to distrust and darkness, to the gloom of anguish. And God saves still. The people, they give themselves over to darkness, but the people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. How does God save us from darkness? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is how God saves the world. He sent a baby. These mighty rulers and empires, and here comes the baby in the middle of nowhere. That was the fullness of God bodily dwelling. To declare a kingdom that's not of this world and to save us unto this kingdom. These are dark days, friends. Are you just hoping for a better time? If you're just hoping 2020 is, 2021 is better, that's not hope, that's optimism. We need hope, and the remnant of God hopes in him. They know his presence, they fear him, they know his word. This is a land of deep darkness, but light is shining. There's a subversive kingdom that's interjecting even into our land. Don't despair that we live in this day. Rejoice that we live in such a day. 
God is doing something. Will we now pause long enough to be prayerful and to say, Lord, what are you doing? And even what are you doing in me? I'll close with this from 2 Corinthians 4. I keep coming back to this chapter. Therefore, as we have this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you know God's light shining into your heart? Don't sit in self-condemnation. Don't say that you've sinned greater than his grace. This is a grace that is greater than all of our sin. This is a love deeper than, more magnificent than we could ever imagine. This is Christ our Lord, Emmanuel with us. Worship him. If you've known him and followed him, may these words spur you back onto the road of faithful discipleship. And if you're an unbeliever, and, but you feel like the Lord is, like I've never understood this. I've never understood grace. I've never, what am I supposed to do? Is this just a religion? But this is deeper. Yes, it is. It's believing in Christ Jesus the Lord, knowing and following him. That's you. Come believe him today. Give your heart to him as he calls you to himself. Let's pray.